Well, we're in this series that we have titled You Pick because you picked the series titles. And so this week, we're going to address one of those topics, and it is what happens when it doesn't make sense. When you read Scripture and you read two accounts that seem to contradict one another, what do you do with that? Do you just not question it? Do you just go on and say, well, that's the Bible, and that's what it says, and I shouldn't do anything? In fact, I was telling somebody Friday night, I said, I could just get up on Sunday morning and go, there are none, and be done. And I just didn't feel like that was right. You know, because I'm paid to speak, and so I, I get paid by the word. So sometimes, um, maybe sometimes you think that, but no, I, I don't. But um, but no, I think if this were 1980, it might be simpler to say because there wasn't this thing called the internet, and there wasn't all the information available to us everywhere. All you have to do is go online and search Bible contradictions, and you come up with an endless list or an endless number of sites or endless number of people that want to tell you the Bible is full of contradictions. What do you do with that? What do you do when you come across all of those claims? Well, I think there's a, a warning, right? Just because it's on the internet doesn't make it true. And there's a young man who did a science experiment with his school to kind of prove that fact that sometimes we take things on face value when maybe we should do a little bit of investigation. His name was Nathan Zothar, Zoner, and he actually petitioned his school and the parents at the science fair to ban this chemical's use in his high school. He said it's being used every day, and there are all these dangers that people are unaware of, and that he was asking parents to actually sign a petition to ban this substance in the school. And sure enough, parents signed it right and left. And he proved his point that people don't investigate. They just take something that sounds real, and they take it at face value. And maybe you don't know what dihydrogen monoxide is, but maybe you recognize it by its chemical component. You don't recognize the chemical name. But most of you use this substance every day, and you know it by this name, water. And so he proved the point that a lot of times, just because something sounds dangerous doesn't mean that it is dangerous. There are, can be some dangers if you mishandle it. But it's something that we can't do without. And I would say the same thing is true of God's word. We can't do without it. We shouldn't just dismiss it. And so there should be some ground rules when we come across what appear to be contradictions. We should at least examine it and see if they hold up. And so this morning we want to look at what do we do when we come across something in God's word. The first thing as Christians that we should come at God's word is understanding our understanding of God's word. How we what we teach about God's Word. And one of the things that we teach about God's Word is that it is inspired. That it's not just written by a bunch of men somewhere a thousand years ago. While it was written by men, it was inspired by God. In fact, the Scriptures tell us this. Paul says to his young son Timothy in the faith, he says, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and righteousness. He says, all of it is God-breathed. God inspired it. That God oversaw the writing of it. God instructed how it was to be put together. And so if God is truly the God of the one true God and he's the inspiration behind it, would you not expect it to be accurate? Would you expect for there to be contradictions? You wouldn't expect that. But we confess that it is inspired. But we also confess that it was written by men. Peter says this about Paul's writings, that Paul wrote 
you with the wisdom that God gave. And Peter, he said, Paul wrote. Paul wrote as Paul, as a human being, with free will. God wasn't dictating. The Holy Spirit wasn't this little, like, three-inch guy on his shoulder whispering into his ear, but God oversaw what Paul would write. Knowing what Paul would write in this situation guided Paul's direction, brought things to mind as Jesus said he would. The Holy Spirit would bring to mind truths that Jesus taught and things that we're yet to understand. They would bring it to their understanding through the Scriptures and through Jesus' teaching. And so Paul and Peter and Mark and Matthew and John all wrote as themselves from their perspective with their personalities. And as you read the text, their personalities come out. Just as if you were to read a letter from me or someone else, you would see a difference. So we do believe the Bible was inspired by God, the inspiration behind it all, but also that it was written by human beings. It wasn't just written by human beings. And we believe because God was the inspiration behind it that it is inerrant. It does not err. Now let me make some qualifications there, some clarifications there. What we're not saying is the Bible is literally true in everything that it says. And sometimes you'll hear that claim made. Do you literally believe everything the Bible says? And your answer should be, no, I don't. Because that's the truth. Because there are things in the Bible that aren't true. Let me give you an example. We just finished the series on Job. There were things that Job's friends said about God that were not true. There were things that Job thought about God that were not true. There are things that Satan, because his words are recorded in the Bible, and who is he? The father of lies. And so why would we believe a lie? We wouldn't. So we don't believe everything the Bible says is true. We believe everything the Bible teaches is true. That what we were being taught through those lies is that people have a misunderstanding of what God's word says and that there is someone behind the lie trying to deceive us into believing in a lie. And so they mix truth with lie so that we would buy the lie. And scripture teaches us about that. But we do believe there's a lot the Bible says that is true, claims the Bible makes that is true. And examples that over time, just like last week, through the use of science, astronomers and astrologers and physicists and archaeologists in their study and their examination of things have taught us things that the Bible said that once were thought to be nonsense have only been proven to be true. There's this convergence that we see with God's worth, God's word and reality. So we do believe that God's word is inerrant, that it does not err in what it teaches or what it says in that context. In fact, the psalmist says this, all your words, God, are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. And when David says this, he's saying everything in its whole, in the sum of everything that the Bible teaches, not just a particular verse, but everything the Bible teaches is true and eternal. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will never pass away, for it is eternal and true. And so we trust in the Bible. We believe that it is inspired and it is inerrant because its author is God. How does one story over 40 authors over thousands of years hold together? 
because there's one author behind it, the one true God who is righteous and true and does not lie. And so we trust in his word. But what do we do when we come across something that seems like it doesn't add up? It's not inerrant. It seems like there's an error there. What do we do with that? Well, let's first of all talk about what we mean by contradiction. And the best way to describe that is by using one of Aristotle's example of this law of non-contradiction. What Aristotle said still holds true today in the terms of logic is something, the same thing cannot be and not be at the same time and in the same context. The same thing cannot be and not be at the same time and in the same context. My car cannot be black and not black at the same time sitting in my driveway. Just a contradiction. It cannot be true and false at the same time. That's a contradiction. Another example, contradiction. For the sign not to be in use, it needs to be in a shed somewhere, out of the way, not up, right? This is a contradiction. So what do you do when you come across something in Scripture that looks like a contradiction? I think you do some investigation, don't we? You know, the apologist J. Warner Wallace, he's an author and a former cold case detective, and he actually wrote a book called Cold Case Christianity, says this about how we investigate God's Word. He said, just pretend you're driving down the street and you see a stop sign. He says, do you just ignore the sign? Do you look at the sign and you don't see any traffic around and you just can't figure out why the sign is there in the first place? He says, you at least stop, do you not? Or if you live in Naperville, you sort of slow down. But you don't just like zip right through the stop sign. You don't just blow it. You give it consideration, right? You don't say, well, I'm going to ignore it until it's proven right. You treat it fairly. And he said the same thing should happen when we approach God's word. We should treat it with the same amount of fairness. He's saying that we shouldn't like, think it's beyond examination or something that we cannot question. We should do those things, but we should at least give it the same courtesy that we give a street sign or a box of rice or a friend. Right? So when we see something that appears to be a contradiction, we don't just stand up and say, liar, see? and dismiss the rest of it. We should at least fairly examine what is said. And so this morning, that's what we want to do. We want to fairly examine a couple of different examples to get some rules about how we approach these texts and what we do when we ourselves or we're confronted by all these thousands of supposed contradictions in the world. And so I want to turn to a couple of different stories. The first one is found in three different Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel. It's the story about blind men being healed. And it's one that you'll find online as a contradiction. And so I want to give you the three different examples to show you what is claimed to be a contradiction as we look at the story. Matthew records it this way. Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, and a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. So if you have your notes card or good memories, mark this down. Here are the things I want you to remember. Leaving Jericho, two blind men they encountered. Okay? Leaving Jericho, they encountered two blind men. 
Now let's turn to Mark's gospel. Mark says, as they came to Jericho, as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. Do you see the apparent contradiction? In Matthew, we see there were two blind men as they left the city. As they were leaving the city in Mark's gospel, they encounter a blind man whose name is Bartimaeus. Why does Matthew leave that out? Why are there different accounts? Let's turn to the third gospel to see what we find. In Luke's gospel, the words are recorded this way. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. So we see the same story in all three contexts, but we see three slightly different stories, don't we? In Luke's gospel, we see Jesus is approaching Jericho, not leaving Jericho. He's on their way to Jericho. What's up with that? And secondly, there's again a blind man. Not Bartimaeus, but a blind man. And not two blind men, but a blind man. So what do we make of this controversy? What do we make of this supposed contradiction? Well, I want to propose a couple of ways that we look at this. And the first one is by looking at this first example. Was it one blind man or was it two? And was it Bartimaeus, all three, or what was going on here? And I think the way we can resolve it is by looking at a different example of the same kind. Yesterday it rained, correct? Yes. I told you yesterday it rained. But if I said this, it rained and hailed yesterday, does that make my first comment false? No, just makes it more descriptive, doesn't it? It's not a contradiction, but a complementary description of what happened yesterday. Both Matthew and Luke said there was a blind man, or Matthew and Mark, or Luke and Mark said there was a blind man. It was Matthew that said there was two blind men. Luke and Mark did not say there was only a single blind man, but there was a blind man. Having a blind man does not preclude there being two. But they're telling us something different. It doesn't make it a contradiction. And you could fur further go and say, well, why did he say Bartimaeus and the other ones left his name out? Well, one way you could resolve that is by saying, well, maybe Mark is writing as one of the earliest gospels. Maybe Bartimaeus is still living, and he wants people to know that it was the Bartimaeus that they know. So go ask him yourself. Maybe that's one of the reasons why they include Bartimaeus. But another way you could describe it is this. You could say it rained and hailed yesterday morning. Again, a little bit more descriptive. It wasn't just a blind man, but it was Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. So another more descriptive explanation of what happened yesterday, what happened when Jesus healed a blind man. But we know from all three texts is that a blind man was healed. In fact, we know more than one blind man was healed, as they were, Jesus has healed more than just one blind man. So it's not surprising. But how do we reconcile this, leaving or entering Jericho? Now, just because the Gospels are written, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, does not mean that everything recorded there is chronological. So when we look at this situation, we could say those two accounts where they were leaving the city could have happened after Luke's account of them entering the city. 
Does that make sense? So Luke is entering the city in his story, and as Jesus and his disciples are entering the city, they, re- they encounter these blind men. And as Mark and Matthew record the, the, the scenario, they're leaving Jericho and encounter the same situation. But some scholars think, while that solves it, it's not really the best explanation because there's actually a better explanation. And that is, through archaeology, we have discovered there's a better explanation. And one of those is that in Jesus' day, there were two Jerichos. We have the Jericho of the Old Testament that's found in Joshua in 1 Kings. You know, that Joshua and his army marched around and the walls came tumbling down. That's one of them. And that, ex- that exists a little bit further east of Jerusalem. But about a mile west of the old Jericho, closer to Jerusalem, is this Herodian city of Jericho that King Herod the Great constructed. You know, he was known as the great architect in Jerusalem, responsible for rebuilding the temple and, and doing some marvelous construction. And one of those cities was Jericho. And so now you can start to see how this contradiction can be resolved. That in between these two cities, old Jericho to the, to the east, a little bit closer was the new city of Jericho. And it was as they traveled between those cities that both stories can be resolved. Can they not? As they left Jericho... Jesus healed a blind man. And as they were entering the city of Jericho, Jesus healed a blind man. It was the same story. And so we see the contradiction resolved. And it was there as they were going through the second city of Jericho, they encountered this man named Zacchaeus up in a tree. Because all these great crowds were following this guy that just healed this blind man on the road. And so the contradiction is resolved. And we go back to our rule of non-contradiction. And if we look at the rule again, we see the same thing cannot be and not be at the same time in the same context. It was not the same Jericho. Therefore, there is no contradiction. There only appears to be. So applying this rule can help us as we come across text. The first thing we should look at is say, are they talking about the same thing? And is it something that happened at the same time in the same sense in the same context? Context context is very important. As you study Scripture, you find that. So I want to turn to that kind of example here. It's an example of Jesus' own words that are recorded in his Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, In the same way, let your good deeds, let your good works shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your Heavenly Father. When you do good works, do them so everyone can see them and praise God for them. And then just 32 verses later, he says this, watch out, don't do your good deeds in public. So which is it? Do my good deeds in public or I don't do my good deeds in public? What's going on? How do you resolve this? Remember the rule of non-contradiction. It has to be in the same context, the same sense. In the one sense, in Matthew 5, Jesus is saying, when you do your good works, do them so that your heavenly Father gets the glory for the purpose of bringing glory and everyone's attention to God and him and his greatness and his goodness. That's what your good works are a sign of. Not of your goodness and glory, which he says in 6. Don't do your good works so that you get the glory, so that everyone looks at you and is amazed at your goodness and your greatness and your amazing insight. No, you do so to give God glory. The context here, the sense in which you do your good works is one, to give God glory. 
So when you apply that rule of non-contradiction to this text, you see that it's not the same context. It's not the same sense. In the first case, it was so that God gets glory. In the second case was that you get glory, and Jesus says, don't do that. That's being proud. If you know your scriptures, you read throughout scripture that pride is dangerous. In fact, the Bible tells us that God works against the proud. doesn't just not like it. He just works against you. So if you want to be on the winning team, you want to be on team God, not him on the other side. And so we don't approach proudly. We don't do our good works in public for all to see. So they praise us, but for God's goodness, for his glory. So God's word is inspired. It is inerrant in all that it teaches. And it can be understood because we also believe the Bible is clear in everything that it teaches. Scripture itself says it's clear and understandable. Mark Twain said it's not the things about the Bible he doesn't understand that bother him. It's the things that he does understand that bother him. And I think he's so true in that because there is so much that is so clear. The central points of Scripture are so clear that even children understand it, which is why we teach it on Kid Street and why we teach it in our homes because it is understandable. God's Word says it can be taught to children, and children can understand it. In fact, the command is that you should recite it to your children at all times, in all situations, everywhere, from the smallest to the oldest. We should continue to teach them. It says recite. And in that Hebrew word, it means to sharpen, to a razor's edge. You continue to hone it. You continue to sharpen it. In all contexts. As fathers, on Father's Day, we teach our children not to lie. We teach them not to lie. And this text tells us we should teach them what that means in every context. What it means at work, what it means at school, what it means with your friends, what it means in your family, what it means for your life. And we're not just to do so with our words, we're to do so with our lives so that we are not walking contradictions. Because Paul says when we do so, in Romans, he says, when we tell someone not to lie and we ourselves lie, we cause people to blaspheme God. We bring God into disrepute. We make him a contradiction when it's ourselves that are the contradiction. And so we need to be students of the word so that we can teach our children and teach them well that there aren't contradictions in God's Bible. And let me show you. Let me walk with you. Let me teach you what this means. Let me show you what you think and what you've heard to be a contradiction isn't when you understand it in the right context, when you use the rules of non-contradiction to approach God's word. How can we teach our children to study God's word well? That's what he's given us, that opportunity, not just with our children, but with the world, so that we could go and teach others as we have been taught We just can't keep consuming God's word and consuming God's word for our own sake. We do so for the sake of others. So there's just a couple of things I'd like to share with you on how we should approach this, how we can continue to approach God's word as children. Because I think that's what we're called to do. We ask, just as any good child would do, we ask the question, why? When you look at the story of the blind men, All three of those stories are the same story, and all three record the story that when the blind men yell out for Jesus, they're scolded by those that are following him, saying, hey, 
You should be more respectful. Don't just yell out at him. And what does it say they did? All three accounts said they just yelled louder. They just kept asking him. And Jesus turns and heals them. Why should we be afraid of asking questions of God? Why? Do you think God's afraid what we're going to find? Do you think he can't handle our examinations? We said last week in science, do you think we're worried what scientists will find? God speaks through his universe. God speaks through his word. We should encourage exploration. We should encourage examination. We should encourage questioning. But we should then follow it up with examination about what it says, and we should ask the text questions. Well, what does it mean when you say this? And we should ask God himself through prayer, what do you mean? Jesus himself says, ask, seek, knock, and you will find. Doors will be opened. When you seek after the truth, Jeremiah says, when you seek me, you will find me. When you seek me with your whole heart, we need to be childlike in our exploration of God's word eager and excited, asking, why is it do we have to eat green beans? Why do I have to go to bed at 8? Why can't I drive till I'm 16? Why can't I vote and not drink? We should ask questions of God. What good father would discourage their child from asking questions? I mourn the day my kids stop asking me questions. God is our heavenly father, I am sure, encourages our questions, wants us to seek him, wants us to know him. Not just his rules and regulations, but him. So we should continue to ask questions of the text, continue to ask questions of God. But we should also ask questions of one another. There are people that are more learned than us, that we should seek after answers. I don't understand what this means. How do I figure that out? We do that in small group. We do that here on Sundays. We do that one-on-one. And if we can't do that, we start contacting or we start exploring scholars who have brought their words to us with great study. Why would we not inquire of what they say? We should do so because God encourages the inquisitive. But I think there's also a second part that we need to do so with humility. We should approach it with humility. Jesus says in this text that God's word, God's truth, is hidden from the proud. Those that think they know it all, that, are, that go in and say, I clearly know what God's word says. And what they're really saying is, I clearly see how my life measures up with what God teaches. And Jesus said, you're, you're missing the point. You're, the truth will be hidden from you when you are so certain of yourself. And we need to approach God's text as a child, inquisitive, in awe of God, because he is so much bigger than we give him credit for. And thirdly, I believe that we need to keep reading. We don't stop reading. You know, when I was younger, I couldn't, at times in my stubbornness, reconcile my dad's rules and my dad's love, because they seem to contradict some, one another at some times. Well, if you love me, you wouldn't ground me because I'm gonna miss my friend's party. And if you love me, you wouldn't do that. And then as I get older and have children of my own, I see there's love and there's wisdom in those words. Because I kept reading my dad and I kept understanding who he is and I came to a fuller understanding of who he is. And that's what he desires of us, for us not just to understand the rules, but his heart. Peter stood before Jesus and he asked him this question, how many times should I forgive my brother? 
Seven times? I'm sure Peter was going, please, just seven. But Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. 490 times? That doesn't mean we get out a tally sheet, right, when you think of that person. Jesus is telling us more, and as we study God's word, as we consult scholars, as we consult those people that know more than we do, we learn that numbers in the Bible mean something. And that number seven means perfection in the Hebrew culture. So when you see that number seven or something said seven times, you can go, oh, there's something else going on here. And Jesus is saying, no, not just seven times, but 70 times seven. 70 being an idea of completion. So complete perfection. Not just perfect, but complete perfectness. Jesus is saying to Peter, no, you should never stop forgiving your brother. As long as your brother's alive, as long as you are alive, you forgive your brother, just as your heavenly Father has forgiven you. I can imagine Peter going to Jesus and saying, well, how many times should I read through the Scripture? Seven times? And he says, no, 70 times, seven times. You should never stop studying the scriptures. You should never stop learning about your heavenly father. We should spend the rest of our lives being students of his word because we are called to be teachers of his word, not just students. If we want to go deeper in God's word, we should start teaching God's word because what's when we teach God's word that we get questions from people. Like, well, what does that mean? And then it causes us to investigate and it causes us to learn in ways that we could never learn just being students. Because we are called to go and make disciples, not just be disciples. And to do that, we need to be people of the book. Because this book, as we're told, is useful for teaching. It is a way that we come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ and what it means to be human and how we're to live and how we're to flourish and how we are to instruct one another, how we are to raise up our children with that understanding so that they would teach their children and their children and their children and their children so that, that we would not forget that God is good, that he is great, that he is true, and his word is relevant today and tomorrow. For eternity, his word is useful and righteous and good because he is the one good, good father, true, good, and righteous. As his children this morning, maybe you start to see a theme in this series. You pick. Where are the answers? In God's word. We should always be seeking God and his word. Answers to all his questions reside there. We need not be ashamed. We need not be afraid to examine, to question his word. I believe he welcomes it. What good father would not? Come back next week. We're going to talk about angels. And we're going to do the same thing. We're going to see what the Bible says.